I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Noodles, noodles, Michael. You're eating noodles. Worms, Michael. You're eating worms. (laughs) Welcome to another episode. Of Let's Talk More Movies, episode 10. Yeah, Woo! celebration bitches. Double digits, baby. <laughs> I am your host, Michael. Oh, wait. Oh, I fucked it up. I am your host, Michael Breslin. Our live musician for the week is... Christopher Norbin. And to my right is... Colin Heron. And to the left is... Sean Cole. Hey, everybody. What's happening, baby? How do you, how do you, how do you feel about like, the fucking the 10th episode? Um, I don't think we'll get here. Nah, never. <laughs> In all fairness, after episode three, I thought that we're done. But no, we we, we fucking we we've moved her on. We haven't died yet. No, we haven't died yet. Exactly. We haven't died yet. 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 We Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I went nowhere. Just, just bring up Liar. Okay. I, I just, you, know, I, I thought, you, know. you said a name and then realized, you know what, I got nowhere to go. Like. Well, no, I was, uh, I was eating a packet of crisps. No, no, you weren't. You weren't. No, you definitely weren't. It's a bag of dogs. Um, so, Heron, your, your danger bottle this week? The old uh, Budgel de la Donge is, uh, is uh, a very humble fat frog. <laughs> but I thought it would go a bit more... Uh, what we say, uh, exotic. Exotic. <laughs> it's not green. It's not your typical green. Like it's uh, indigo. Oh, it's got a deep blue color off it. Like, much, if you want to explain, much, much like actual frogs, exotic frogs are mo- yeah. different colors. Right? Well, for for the listener, if you want to explain what fat frog is, uh, a fat frog. Uh, I doubt fat frog is an description on the bottle. It has it has salt <laughs> up here. Oh, it's got salt up here. What's that? Actually, I was looking for a descriptor. What does it have here? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll go for a Liam Neeson one. We just done bottled <laughs> in the UK for elite marketing. 115A Harrington Road. Crazy Belgrade, Dublin, or Ireland. Best before. See bottled. <laughs> so essentially there's no description yeah. just, if, if you ever want to contact Fat Frog or something, Aye, just let them know eh? let them know. what's our percentage on it uh, that's about 3% 4% 4% 4% commotion illusion that's bad like the whole essence of a danger bottle aye. was for it to be absolute as we said before wreck a hoose juice and that's not the case at all that's like drinking fucking it's lemonade but like the banging beer I was thinking as we should put a bit of vodka in it just to liven it up a bit you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> pull, pull them flavours out like. a 10 glass of glass and oh, you might as well tap that bad boy up you know what I'm saying <laughs> but the, th- the thing with Fat Frog like it started off it was like an actual kind of semi cocktail with just a bunch mm. of alcohol pops in it it's like, nah, it's like that was 
the WKDE or something? Yeah, it? no, that was the uh, Gypsies cocktail. Uh, no, no, actually, it was <laughs> our, I know, but it was Fat Frog, uh, that, that's what it was. And then uh, they started bottling it. And now it's just become uh, some sort of a brand. That, that uh, has no essence of Fat Frog in it. It's just a blue <laughs> alcoholic liquid. No, that, that, the actual <laughs> etymology of the whole drink was... Uh, <laughs> was this Fat Frog? They just, just drank all the time. And uh, I'm just sitting there. Occasionally, we just we just spread a wee bit of pesh at him. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a boy sitting there with a wee shot glass and he's just going what boy was sitting there like what boy was mining this frog for a pouch this, <laughs> this boy called Jerry Nordic from Craigan uh, <laughs> now nah, we don't but sitting there with a wee shot glass he was probably called Mozambique or something but uh he was sitting there with a wee shot glass and just as he pushed it out but then pick this up out and then uh that's it you know, that's how it started that's that, that's that the actual, uh, I love yeah, as well like, I love three minutes that, on this actually, podcast uh, it must be Chris this <clears throat> sort of influence but three minutes on this podcast Michael Bresson started talking about the virtues of fat frog <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well I think I actually must have just grabbed a big fat frog and fucked it in a blender <laughs> this is the longest we've ever actually talked about the danger bottle and we haven't actually drank it <clears throat> ah no we haven't actually drank it give it up give it up did, uh, you, did you whack a bit of vodka in it what did you whack vodka in there? Why, why, why would you even fucking do that to yourself? Like, well, just get a sub it. Yeah, get this fucking laughing go in there. It tastes exactly like a green fat frog. <laughs> There's absolutely no difference whatsoever. Just a blue dye in it. <laughs> exactly. Just fucking food colouring, that's all they've done. It's, it's a cunning plan. <laughs> Have you caught us out there? Sean's hoaching. Like fuzzy sweets or something. Aye, it tastes like refreshers or something like that. They're just Aye. fucking mold up in a blender. Or well, Parma or something. Put some booze in that, please, Tom. So, can I can I have another one of those and uh, put some booze in it, please? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck me, it actually just tastes like a fucking pack of chewing gum. Yeah, <laughs> like a like a melted popsicle. Yeah. In all fairness, I bought a vodka. Get that up, let's fight like. Give it a wee lift. Give it a give it give it a bit of fragrance there, Shane. Throw a can I uh, bought a Bailey's t-shirt for me. That's our lot there. Like Glenn meets a fat frog. Okay, what did we watch this week? I watched uh, Ra- Radio Days. It's uh, Woody Allen Fong. I think it's 1987. And I watched it, I, I spoke a couple weeks ago about the Purple Rose of Cairo. And like, I really enjoyed that. So I'm kind of a wee bit of Woody Allen. I've, I've, he's, he's one of those directors you... you we always told you can't have to see all the there's films shit loads of it though it's always there's daunting so much, there's so much it is daunting because I think Jesus I checked his IMDb page I think that he's, he's got like 62 films as a director well, he makes uh, a film a year don't yeah he? he makes a film a year it's his whole thing and I mean uh, I kind of made a point of, of making a good fucking you know putting a good stitch on there like they see if I could the last time I counted is that uh, I, I'd seen like 16 so I'm fucking nowhere close to, to that milestone but anyway Radio Days really good film like Purple Rose Caro it's um, kind of like a, a reflection on a, a certain time period. Purple Rose of Cairo is obviously like 1930s melodramas and film, whereas this, as it says in the title, is about the golden age of radio, and like the 1940s and stuff like that. And it's, it's really interesting because it's like a love letter to radio, uh, which is obviously something that most people aren't aware of nowadays because radio is just for, you know, fucking jocks and Radio 1 and all that shit pop right. music. But back then, like, radio was... Ra- radio is old news. Radio Pod- is. Podcast is <laughs> <laughs> We're not less talking about radio. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but... 
it's it's a, it's just a, a a lovely film because it's I mean sometimes you can maybe accuse it of being overly sentimental and maybe it's a wee bit too nostalgic, but at the same time it just work it, it doesn't push it that far. It's just a nice film, this reflection on this time period that I was kind of forgotten about, and uh, it's it's like a slice of life. There's no real plot. It's like uh, it's jumping between these plots. Like uh, he talks about it's Woody Allen as a child, but he narrates it. He's not actually in it. He's talking about his aunt who's looking for love during the war years, and he's talking about him as a kid like looking for this like a bb gun or, or, or something like that and it's it's just an enjoyable film and, and, and what i did like about it as well is that there's fucking some serious mood whiplash in there because mm. it's really funny it's woody allen at his, at, at his peak like i mean everybody always says all oh, the earlier films of woody allen oh, oh give us one of the funny ones where he's kind of got a wee bit more uh self-referential i think and, and mm. a wee bit more focused on drama in the later years maybe it is his downfall even though like said like blue jasmine and uh what's that midnight in paris are, are pretty good Aye. uh it's funny, it's really, really good, but then, like I was saying about the mood whiplash, it goes in, there's there's a particular scene where, uh, it's like a, a comedy scene about, the, or a comedy scene about the, the anthem stuff, like that, being on a night out, and everything's going well, and then it just cuts to this next scene, about the, the really famous uh, radio report of, uh, the, you know, the, the kid getting trapped in the well, it's kind of what the Ace in the Hole by Billy Wilder is mm. based uh, on, but then it builds up this kid being pulled out, and the actual story is that the, that the kid was dead by the time they got the kid and it's a really fucking downer but it just jumps from this you know kind of massive elation to being a fucking massive downer but then it doesn't affect the flow of it whatsoever because he is just doing this kind of uh, homage to radio and, and the kind of power it has much like he did you know with cinema and so many of his other films really really enjoyed it um the end as well some people can say it's a wee bit sentimental but uh, i definitely it's worth a watch i liked it a lot <laughs> chris have you watched anything this week uh, well, the only thing I watched this week was McLean come over. I fell asleep watching Casablanca. Oh, okay. <laughs> cannot uh, be touched. Because um, I was flying. I, was fly- I haven't heard of that before. Uh, <laughs> what's that about? Uh, it's a spinoff from Coronation Street. So. <laughs> <laughs> Casablanca did have a TV show then, didn't it? No, it had like a really under, like, well, basically nobody knows about the sequel. It was like pa- Passage de Marseille or something like that there. Marseille, yeah. Nobody spoke and seen that. I thought it had like a TV show after. Woody Allen, I think, played against him. I think Humphrey Bogart was his sort of mentor or something. Yeah, I've never, yet again, the fucking colossal filmography that is Woody Allen. I've not made it to play it against him, like, you know what I mean? So maybe I'll get there someday. But I Casablanca, of course, a true classic. What were your thoughts? Well, Actually, I didn't last too long because I was falling asleep. But uh, I turned first film I turned on because it was just like flying over in the night, and I was all watch on. You can't fall asleep in a film in two thousand one. Space Odyssey, best plane ever. What a selection! Look at that two thousand one Casablanca. You already see the Sony X-Men hat on there. Like tons of Stanley Kubrick, like aliens and alien and all. Like uh, how Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> monsters. No, no, but <laughs> I'll go through all the lists and then it. Uh, Lethal. Attica! How do you do it? I'm sorry. <laughs> How do you do it? <laughs> but I, I, I stuck on, uh, what do you call it, 2001, and I was like dozing off, and just as that part to start, we're all apes are knocking fuck at each other. We're <laughs> 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 all on that music. That's all, it's just doesn't relax and so I'll fall asleep. Best description of the start of 2001. <laughs> 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 all apes knocking fuck at each other, all on that music. It's not a comment on evolution, it's just yeah. apes knocking fuck at each other. Bitting a fucking I'll just fall asleep there, you better hump both, smoking fags all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I so I didn't even get that far through it, but I saw it before. It was that nice. 
And it's always fucking, you're saying about as well, smoking fag, like, you know, earlier films, mm. like the 30s and 40s and yeah, stuff like that. When I was like, kind of getting into like, following the world, older films, when I was like a teenager and stuff, and I just started smoking through years, they like black wax them, but you couldn't get 20 minutes on there, and then films were like fucking being gasping for fag, like, because they're constantly <laughs> fucking reeking. I'm, like, I'm gasping you fucking talking about. I remember watching uh, Angel Heart, and uh, I, had, I, had no, I had no drink or uh, smokes or anything. I was watching it, and it was that that scene where uh, he's on the phone uh, in his office, and he's the phone. Like, this the safe year. Yeah, he's what they talking, <laughs> looking through a thing, and he fucking just pulls out a drawer of a fucking bottle of whiskey and starts lighting a fire. He's on with the safety year. <laughs> so I'm pausing this here. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good argument, get a quarter bottle and ten fags. <laughs> 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 the least amount of money you could spend. Quarter bottle of MacArthur's and Ted Fags. <laughs> Just on that five pound limit, maybe. That's a good danger bottle, quarter bottle of Ted Fags. Well, I was back in the day, like, couldn't get that Damn, these days. No chance. But, uh, yeah, this week I watched Palo Alto. Yeah, James Franco. Yeah. And Zoe Kazan. No, no, it's fucking oh, uh, Emma Roberts. Emma Roberts, sorry. There's, there's another kid in it as well. I can't even say his name. But um, yeah, it's it's a bit it's a bit of a weird film. Mm. It's it's based. Hang on. But they're just hair mashing out something up over It's it's based on a. <laughs> Who's asking? It's, it's based on a book of short stories by James Franco, and it kind of feels like just a bunch of short stories kind of put together. Yeah. And but was that a Kickstarter campaign? I think it was. Um, I, I couldn't tell you. Okay. I, uh, I don't think it was, but uh, no, recently because it's or or the actual book of short stories was a Kickstarter campaign. Oh, maybe that was. Uh, I think it was. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it is a weird one. It's just it is just a bunch of kind of short stories that don't really seem to go anywhere, and maybe they've kind of just threaded them all together to make it into a film or something. Is it short stories about the same two characters, or short stories like about maybe multiple characters? Well, in in the film, it's you have basically two main characters, Emma Roberts and another kid that I can't remember. Yeah. But uh, and then his his best friend kind of comes into it a bit as well, so I don't know if the short stories is like that as well, or if it's a bunch of short stories and they change mm. it for the film. But uh, the the the, the stories don't really go anywhere. It's just kind of like things happen and then they kind of move on and other things happen. Yeah. So it's a bit of a weird one. Like I watched it with Jill and she she kind of said when the film ended, like it didn't really end. Like nothing, yeah. not much happened. It just kind of fades out. There was uh, no kind of yeah. fucking narrative structure yeah. at all. That's what I was going to say. Like about uh, radio days is that. Radio Days is like a slice of life film, you know what I mean? Because it's obviously just focusing on all these uh, desperate sort of plot lines. But there's some sort of narrative goal there. But they do that, like, you know, in the likes of, like, Days Days and Confused. (coughs) Or even, like, uh, we were talking about a couple weeks back. Fucking, uh, like, even Wet Hot Hot American Summer, which is, like, fucking obviously the Netflix show is going to be, like, uh, released soon, a prequel date. Doing, like, a slice of life. I think a lot of like streamers and stuff like that think, oh, like, you know, it's a lot easier because we, we can just write a couple of characters for a few scenes and we don't actually have to give them an arc and we don't have to think about it as much and we can just fuck it all together and it becomes like really fucking stodgy and like obviously like you were saying, it just kind of fades out and there's no real narrative sort of fucking cohesion there at all. But if you do it right, like Radio Days, like all those stories are fucking completely mm. not connected whatsoever, but they're just framed by the 1940s and radio it works perfectly, so, I mean, I think you do have to think about it when it comes to something like this. I kind of thought, actually, uh, we're talking about the Slice Life thing, I thought Miami Vice, the Michael Mann film, was underrated for that exact reason. Right. I, I mean, there's, there's lots of things they fucking say against that film, and, like, I'm a big Michael Mann fan, but I think, 
people were annoyed that there was no establishing the story and you know you don't know why their partners and all this mm. over. I mean, you're fucking evil. Why? I mean, you don't know their partners are fucking cops uh, for partners. Exactly. <coughs> you know, it's been it was a franchise as well for thirty years. Uh, do you really need yet an origin exactly, story? Exactly. And just thought, you know, it would have been really lazy to do a fucking origin story. And I actually thought it was kind of cool that they just started and then there was just you know one scene where he just says, "Man, you know." We have to do this again. We have to fucking we take a risk here, and then it just is. We, we we trust each other. And it was just it was one line in the whole film. It's the only time we kind of um, see that they're very close, but it's it's delivered in one line. The rest of it is it's like an unspoken thing of they just yeah. inherently trust each other. They just know each other. Because uh, people thought the film was quite cold for that, but I actually thought it was far stronger for that same reason. Like. See, I like that more as well because it's actually more exciting for the viewer because. Even if a viewer goes on, they weren't aware like a Miami Vice franchise. Uh, not like, not everything spelled it's out. Like, like, you don't <coughs> have to be bogged down with yeah. fucking exposition. You don't have to be bogged down because yeah. fucking every viewer has seen thousands of fucking yeah. origin stories. Maybe for once, just shoot straight under the fucking action, the shoot straight under the storyline. The thing that annoys me about that film, though, is that the ending, uh, you know how it ends on the docks? Yeah. It was meant to end that way. It was meant to end where they were going to go to South America and there's a big drug raid at the end. You know, that house yeah. that was sh- uh, kept showing yeah. up in the film, there's a big drug raid down there. And it was just this big mad thing where they were, like the last uh, third of the film was in South America. But because Jimmy Fox had just finished Ray, mm. I think he was doing the publicity for that. And he actually, he just said, I'm not going to South America. Really? And, and he said, I'm not traveling to promote films anymore. I'm not traveling to do this series. He's, we'll just do that in America. And so the, the, the reason that it ends like that is because of Jimmy Fox. He didn't want to go to America. First of all, that's like balls on Jimmy Fox's part. That's but that, that, that's going to be far cooler. Just yeah. heading on to South America. But then at the same point, he didn't want an Oscar for A, so I don't think he gives a fuck. <laughs> I, but, you know, I think there was, there was some, I can't remember the exact phrase, but I remember it just being, I'm not leaving America anymore to do, to do films. Like, and if you've noticed, like, all his films are American films. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't yeah. go out. So it, it was such a, I actually thought the film itself was quite sophisticated, what they were mm. pulling in, you know, from South America and cartels and this kind of thing and all. And, to end it down there just would have just gave it this real you know richness that you don't you just don't have in films yeah. like you know would it really sort of go to other countries and all you know it's a cop case but eh, whatever just closing on Miami Vice too what I also liked about Miami Vice is obviously when it was going to be made and stuff like that the kind of shadow of the TV show hung over because the TV uh, show seen as 80s it's seen as pure cheese and naff yeah. and stuff whereas Michael Mann kind of stripped that back and he just made it a really fucking tight mm. considered crime film that mm. fucking stood alone Completely apart from Miami Vice, had the same characters and stuff, but it was yeah. like a, a reinvention. Of them. But uh, aye, what did you watch this week? Hopefully not Miami Vice again. I watched no, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I watched uh, Don't Look Now by Nicholas Rogue. Oh yes, because uh, I, I watched. Uh, it's one of them I, I I'd watched a stack of times like before, and uh, and I was sort of just trying to find all these different films, and it was actually what put me back to rewatch it because I watched Performance a few weeks ago, and. It was just it was the editing style was just it's so distinctly yeah. similar and the the shooting style is so distinctly similar. I think just Rogue just has a, just a great way of shooting. And uh, the thing about Don't Look Now, it's just um, it's I mean, subtly horrifying. It, it is. It's mad. I mean, if you don't know the, the story, is about uh, just a, an architect character who uh, he loses his daughter at the start of the film and. Um, what happens then is is that uh, he starts to see you know sort of shadows of, of his daughter here and there and pictures and and things and you're you're wondering what's real and what's not. Just wearing a wee red coat and stuff. Uh, that's how you kind of define uh, it. There's a mad sort of psychosis with it and stuff. But um, I think it's his editing style is on you know a character be sitting at a window and just looking out you know over his you know his, his garden or just looking around the room. But at the same time he intercuts with 
with metaphor a lot, mm-hmm. which I think is, is a style that's really distinctive of the seventies, where you undercut, you know, nature, you undercut, you know, skies, yeah. or you undercut, you know, just incidental things, but they heighten a point. And Nicholas Rude, I think he's the sort of signature by it, done, done that. But uh, yeah, Malik's a big cat fan. Malik as well, Malik as well is about to bring up Malik. I Malik just he, he he I think he does it with a bit more. Uh, a wee bit more grace than Rogue, yeah. But at the same time, I like the way Rogue just fucking hits you with. Right, it might a, be a wee bit more on the nose, but the point he's trying to make is, you know, that there's a lot of exactly, fucking work yeah. out like. But um, no, that no, it's very, it's, it's a, it's one of the, he's great at this. He, he, you can get handed the simplest story in the world, but he, t- he just turns on this one special. He's just, he's just very, very good at that. Sound a great director, though. Yeah. You know, I mean, if your hands are He's a big scrub. DP as well. There's, there's yeah. documentary actually. It was on BBC Four last week about Nicholas Rogue, and he was a DP as well. He was a DP on Lawrence of Arabia. Fuck. And, I actually didn't know that. Uh, and he was a DP on Doctor Zhivago. Which are like two, like uh, two of the most lauded films mm. visually ever. <laughs> All right, right. I just, Colin Sorry. just knocked my microphone. Never was uh, good. Continue. But I, I think, well, which, which was the later one? Because it's it's both David Lean, isn't it? Doctor Vig- Doctor Zhivago, both David Lean, eh? But Doctor Zhivago, which was later? Don't quote me on this. Because he I got fired think, from one of them. I think Lawrence of Arabia is after Doctor Zhivago. No, wait there. No, Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia is like maybe sixty five. I think, think Doctor Zhivago is like sixty seven. Um, see, I think the day the Ham and David Lean had a, a sort of a relationship that was, okay, it was just sort of. You know, working relationship. I can't argue with me. All the best relationships are a bit sort of, you know, uh, tough or whatever. And this guy's stuffing on some of the best work. Most relationships are shit. Most relationships are shit. Trying to flat out. Oh, you know what I'm saying? But I know. Note the listeners. I continue that because it just sounds like a fucking psycho. Do cut that. But what do you call it? No. I mean, you're talking about your hair sogs and your, you know, and uh, hair sog and uh, what do you call him from Foot Square Aldo and stuff? The actor from Foot Square Aldo? Klaus Kinski? Klaus Kinski. They, they, they were like, they had a really tumult, uh, tumultuous? tumultuous relationship. I, yeah, just and, uh, following the gaps. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think, I actually think he was, I think uh, Rogue was was fired from both Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. I, th- I could be wrong, but I think somebody got rehired again. <laughs> no, no, but the, the, the stuff. That he, but I mean, that's what everybody always says. This is the stuff you remember about Chivago and the stuff you remember about Lawrence of Arabia. He says that's that's like a signature Nicholas Rogue stuff. And he says, and then after he said somebody else came on and they get the DP credit. But he says all the signature stuff that you remember from his films. He says that it's always Nicholas Rogue. But uh, anyway, I think song that really speaks for that, and we'll, we'll, we'll close it there. Is that we've all watched obviously fucking a lot of films there's some fucking really striking images and mm-hmm. so many films mm-hmm. and you know the classic shots that always stick in your head mm-hmm. but then I think that song that says a lot for Nicholas Rogue as a sort of a visual artist and definitely as his DP it, or his, his cinematography his match on cuts is his background his cinematography background is one of the, the main shots that comes to my head when I'm thinking just like, say, no not even that just no? even that, but obviously that's a, a fucking massive one too but if I'm just fucking lying about and see, so you're just thinking about fun, just fucking about. So you're sitting on a bus or something like that, there or whatever. Uh, <laughs> sitting on a bus, thinking about films. Just oh, yeah, you yeah. don't, you don't ride the bus. <laughs> I do. I get the bus to work every day. Thank you very much, public transport, baby. But anyway, <laughs> what was I going to say? I fucking uh, 
you're sitting thinking about all these great shots, and then one of the ones that always, one of the first ones they pop into my head is that shot of the girl we are back, the Donald Sutherland, in Don't Look Now, mm. the red coat. Mm. Also one of the fucking, for me anyway, I know personally, one of the fucking scariest sequences I've ever seen. It's fine. Oh, I don't remember Donald Sutherland. Aye, Donald Sutherland. He's beating around Venice, no? Aye, Venice, aye. <laughs> aye. <laughs> he catches on there. Aye. Talking about the small brother Aye, that's fucking bad. That's class, no? I love how... <laughs> it is his first podcast. I wish they fucking weren't going back to America in two weeks because I love how you deduce films. Like, 2001, them fucking monkeys but they're fucking shaving each other. And then, ah, fucking don't look now. It's just all sort of bitting around Venice. <laughs> <laughs> I run is that the one with fucking Leon and De Niro fucking betting on Paris? They passed us along. Right, Terry, move it. Oh, actually, two seconds. Two seconds, just back to Palo Alto. The two other actors I was on about was Jack Kilmer and Nate Wolf. They were very good in films. I just generally ones to watch. <laughs> but just, just generally, the stories were didn't really come together ever. But it, it just had a good vibe and good, good kind of style about it. And I, I did mm. enjoy, It's a good. I enjoyed watching it, even mm. though it's a weird film. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to. All right. Okay, and we'll move on to Euros. That's terrible. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, my first. My is just news about me. Apparently, <laughs> uh, the first piece Gotta of watch news <laughs> for once. I didn't even. I'm empty. Yeah. My hole is etchier than normal. <laughs> uh, the first piece of news is that Timothy Spall is to play Ian Paisley in the Troubles drama The Journey. Oh fuck! The drama will document the Protestant leader's unlikely road to, towards friendship with his long-term political enemy Sinn Fein's Martin McGuinness. See, it's about that Tuesday one, and obviously loving them the North Ireland. Yeah, I know, that's you know what I mean. It's, a, it's <laughs> about the politically charged, you would say. But yeah. uh, I, I, you know what, Timothy Spall, unbelievably good actor. I don't know if you've seen like Mr. Turner last year. Just yeah. anything yeah. he's done with like yeah, fucking good, like, uh, secrets and lies. He's just he's a, a good, he's a good grunter. The man <laughs> fucking bats out of the park every single time. I think that if anybody can play uh, Paisley, or can he whistle to his feet? Can he wash? <laughs> <laughs> You know, for a fact as well, it doesn't matter what way that film's going, they're definitely the most triumphant scene is going to be him screaming, Never! It's going to be it. Look, it's going to be it. But you know what? Uh, Obviously, you don't want to go too much on you. Because when you're talking about Paisley, you don't want to get politicised and all like that there. I would just say it's good news because I can actually picture Tom of his ball in that role for any bit. I think that's yeah. a good starting point. And then on top of that, I hey, see that's that's what I thought. Interesting. Don Johnson. I heard Donny Glover's playing. Sorry, Mel Griffith. I heard fucking Mel Gibson's fucking. It's all like cast with a curly hair dust. My dear Matthew McConaughey is fucking. Okay, Kevin Feige, head of Marvel Studios, has mm-hmm. said the new Spider-Man film will be influenced by John Hughes. What? Uh, For real? And you know what's yeah. fucking crazy? Is this is two things we've talked about in the podcast. Mm. My topic a few weeks back was John Hughes and his influence. Then we've done the wee money episode about uh, Spider-Man at the start of the week. Mm. That excites me to no end, <laughs> to be honest with you, because, you know, we were talking before, well, it does it actually, 
I like it in that it's more of a focus, but then at the same time, it's really striking a hard balance because obviously the whole thing about John Hughes is that it's... I can't actually see how it's going to mold together because John Hughes is all about, like, uh, teenage life, but more revolving around, like, kind of... Well, yeah, yeah, maybe. No, 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 think about well, it. Could, it could be. Well, I just I just take it as... But then I hope, I hope that it's... <coughs> It's not like one of the fucking major things, but I hope that obviously that the high school scenes that are setting up, but like, I hope that fucking at the end he's not gonna be walking like a breakfast club and just shooting his arm up there, like you know, I, I mean, so after I he's kicked a fucking dog, 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 that they're just going to focus more on that teenage aspect and just more on the high school thing and what it's like to be a teenager and then oh fuck I have superpowers as well kind of thing. Uh, well like, no you know what that is good that's what I was trying to get at but it was a very fucking mollow point I was trying to make <laughs> yeah, I mean I just don't know where I was going with it but if they keep the John Hughes stuff you know solely confined to the high school and I think yeah. that's a fucking really interesting thing because obviously like I said a few weeks back in, in the topic John Hughes was you know, essentially the first person they ever truly fucking represent, you know, teenagers yeah. or young adults. So if, if they do that, that, that's a good thing because obviously the focus is on actually growing up and then I think it could be a good fucking a jumping off point then for him in this kind of fucking straight teenage life to then become a fucking superhero and he's like, what the fuck It, it should have that Buffy the Vampire kind of thing about the high school. And yeah. that. It, it should have that. It should have that because, I mean, that was one of Buffy's strong suits. Obviously, uh, Joss Whedon's a really good... Uh, writer uh, but I mean one of Buffy's strong suits was the contrast between her kicking a fucking howl at the vampires <laughs> and like and being a student at Sunnydale Highland her teeth out <laughs> and like I said a couple weeks back there's at least two scraps in every Buffy episode <laughs> <laughs> fine 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 watch them there's at least two, two scraps in every episode <laughs> they take that fat frog off me <laughs> okay we'll move on to the next news um Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are going to produce a movie based on the book Houses of Deceit. The book focuses on ex-FIFA executive committee member Chuck Blazer in one of the biggest corruption scandals Chuck in sports Blazer. history. Yes, 10% Chuck and for, for, for first time Also, ever. the film will be directed by Gavin O'Connor. Oh, Gavin O'Connor who's on The Fighter and stuff, I guess. The Warrior, yes. Oh, the Warrior, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was David O'Russell yeah. on The Fighter. Yeah. Uh, Jesus Christ! Right? I know, fuck, an amateur over here, like you know what I mean. Rookie mistakes, left, right, and centre. Got your rose mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I, I, it's the first time that my, my two fucking main interests, well, my our main interest, football, has come into this film podcast. I'm obviously a massive fucking football fan, so I think personally it's fucking really interesting because it's the worst kept secret on earth. The FIFA are the most corrupt mm, yeah. organization on earth, and what's yeah. crazy as well is they're, they're essentially the fucking they're, what do you call him again? What the fucking Star Wars? Isis. Palpatine? Isis. Yeah. What, what do you call his fucking group? The Empire. 
vampire? Vampire, right? Vampire, right? <laughs> Completely <laughs> went down in my head. It's like, they, what are you on? They are, no, but honestly, they are essentially a real life fucking empire from Star Wars. Yeah. Sepp Blatter is basically Palpatine. He <sighs> is the most corrupt human being that you will ever see, and he's denying all the charges now, but hopefully that boy will be fucking found out. But, uh, I really fucking interesting. The thing is, though, is that, I mean, like, there's obviously not going to be any fucking massive explosions or anything like that. It is just, I think it's going to be a definite straight drama We, you know, a lot of fucking boys in suits being very shady, sitting around desk yeah. and fucking taking a lot of tenors under like a table. social network kind of deal, like. Which is a good thing. And then, uh, uh, Gavin O'Connor, he's a really good director. Anything I've seen. I think he done, did he do Pride and Glory as well? Yes, he did. Which, and I That's really, really, it's a there, really underrated nah, film. Pride and Glory's fucking really good too. I mean, like, it's, it's a police procedural, but... It just it, it stands out from amongst the fucking pack because yeah. you've seen the you know, dime a dozen that they are like very very good. Yeah. So I know that sounds exciting. Definitely. No, you see uh, the way I feel about it. I just I just kind of think we we've al- we've already had the best Viva based film in United Passions. Oh you know my mean? Christ, Almighty! <laughs> the uh, the lowest grossing film in U.S. history. Yes, the lowest <laughs> grossing film in U.S. history. United Passions was a film that was released just last year that was funded by FIFA. It was a biopic of Sepp Blatter. Do you know the way I Played said it? Played by Tim Roth. I, uh, Tim Roth. <laughs> Tim Roth from fucking Reservoir Dogs. Aye. Played fucking Sepp Blatter. But the way let's I said it... Let's just say Tim Roth probably doesn't have the best agent in the world. Like. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. He's, actually, he's actually came out and said it was purely financial reasons. Oh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was definitely for the money, like, for the money movie. But uh, what I love is that it's obviously this biopic of Sepp Blatter, but it is so... Over the top, trendy go to its way. They present <coughs> Sepp Blatter as a scent that averges on fucking propaganda. The way I see it, the way I see it, no, honestly, the way I see it is, you ever see that Simpsons episode where Burns makes a film about himself? Uh, that is exactly <laughs> what it is. That is a drink of Judah Ben Blatter. That's what you know what I mean. That, that is exactly what it fucking is. Like, it is this man who is so unbelievably in love with himself and so deluded and they thinking that he's a good person even though he's a fucking awful human being that I'll just make a film telling the whole world how lethal I am but I <laughs> lo- <laughs> no, like, lowest lowest grossing film in American fucking box office history what it took 17 grand that's first week or so less than uh, less than oh. white checks though. Over, over, overall it was like 25 million jeez no it's not 25 million that's, that's pretty probably, probably 25 grand probably 25, 25 grand oh, I don't know but in a way, it's absolutely <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> 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 just dabs. Sepp and his missus went they say oh, just. <laughs> oh no, it's, tw- it's twenty five million they spent on it. Fucking hell. Twenty five million vanity project. I'd say. Sure, that's a fucking drop news, isn't it, FIFA? You know what I mean? Twenty five million. Know, Fuck all damn boys. Not anymore. Damn boys. <laughs> the feds are at the door, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking feds are the kicking your fucking door. Fucking He's all fucked. That's like a five P fall through a hole in your pocket, they have. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, it's like finding a pound of sofa just there. Yeah. Like, oh. Find a pound of sofa is lethal. Yeah. You'd be delighted with yourself. Like. Next news: um, Paul Thomas Anderson has been brought in to write uh, a revised Pinocchio script for Robert Downey Jr. I've seen this earlier on the week, and what? it is bizarre. Like. Which one is the is Paul Thomas the shite one? No, no, that's that's Paul W. That's Paul W. Paul Thomas Ander- Anderson is the anti shite one. He's the uh, lethal one. Like he's the one. He's what? The one with blood, the boogie nights, right, Magnolia, yeah, yeah. Magnolia, yeah. Magnolia yeah. Sydney, and P- stuff like that. PTA to his fans. PTA. Yeah, of course. If you know. Or if even better fans, the old. Parent Teacher Association. If you're really on top of it, like you know, it's first name basis, like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> see, this whole fucking Pinocchio Robert Downey Jr. thing, I don't know what the fuck. What the what? fuck is going on there? Like, who's doing them? Who's directing? 
Um, it doesn't have a director yet, I think. And I'll get, are you thinking Guillermo del Toro's doing his own Pinocchio thing? Alright. Oh, no, was Spielberg, I mean, Spielberg at one point? And then Tom Burton, you already said Tom I Burton. Mean, he's doing Dumbo. <laughs> he's doing Dumbo. Just any, he's saying, you know, it's just fucking hilarious. No, from what I know about the Robert Downey Jr. Pinocchio project, is that Robert mm-hmm. is. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s project, obviously, and uh, they've they've been through a few scripts, but uh, Downey Jr. hasn't been happy with any of them. So now he's called in his quite good friend Paul Thomas Anderson. It's not certainly it's not live action. That's fine. It's not. I know it couldn't uh, be live action because he he said he was never really up for the role, but they had a conversation about him being in in her vice instead of uh, Joaquin Phoenix. But uh, I think they immediately came to a conclusion he was too old for it. But Should've Michael, been. is this live action? I believe so. Jesus Should've fucking got. Christ. It's just, it's one of those things, like, right? <laughs> it's like, Pinocchio, obviously the whole fucking famous thing is that his fucking, his bonk, his nose, sorry, his nose fucking flies out anytime he lies. And that's, <laughs> that's alright in animation. But I mean, like, I don't, I, he could, like, have the greatest directors on earth, but a man sitting when he's fucking <laughs> telling a porky pie and his nose just shooting out, that is going to look shite. Like, you know what I mean? That is going to I, I imagine just like fucking, I don't know, making a friend in the morning, just turning around with like massive nose on you. <laughs> just flanging about you. I don't know. We drank it last night, no. <laughs> 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 Great right, guys, you have last uh, night too. <laughs> 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 uh, scoop a sausage and a fry with your nose. Just <laughs> <laughs> I see, it's, it's just ripe for comedy. Just turn around, whack a boy. But certainly it's not on. supposed to be comedy because no doubt that fucking doesn't got a stranglehold in that like no it's I, I don't think it's the it's like a serious thing. director did he fucking pull that off like? it, it, it seems like a fucking tough ask like. well we, we PTA doing a revise on the script now PTA's writing Pinocchio as well I, st- I still haven't used the people calling him PTA by the way it, it's just uh, well, Paul Thomas Connors it's, it's, it's uh, it's ridiculous I don't know I know it was Sean Connors but uh, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. should pull Shane Black and turn into a buddy movie it's just like the wee granddad character and Pinocchio bitting around just shitting boys shitting boys shitting Mel Gibson I just fucking snuff, snuff, bang, bang or something. Very good. No, but we. But we. Paul Thomas Anderson writing the script. I mean, Pinocchio can get really dark. I mean, I mind the anime series. When Twenty lives flat out. Then like. <laughs> just, just, really just, just eclipses the sun. Like massive. <laughs> No, but I, I mean, the, the anime series when I was a kid, that scared the fuck out of me. It was just so weird and creepy. There was an anime Pinocchio? Anime uh, Pinocchio, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. has been talking about it for ages, right? And, and he, he, he responded to that particularly, actually. What did he say? <laughs> no, but... He, he was lying, he was in character. <laughs> no, but he... I think it's been a project that has for ages. I think the thing is... I think he's going to both play Geppetto and Pinocchio. Who the fuck's Geppetto again? The, the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy, the boy that bought them. The boy oh, the old boy. Them. Are you actually serious? I you forgot, forgot who Geppetto was? I haven't watched Pinocchio since I was so, like so I, I think That doesn't was, matter. I, it's just, I didn't know his it's, name was Starbuck. But it's, no. it's a puppet. Everybody get a puppet, isn't he? I know that. No, but you were saying, like, we were saying, as I was talking about him. Does nobody know what Pinocchio is? No, but I was just making sure, but we were joking about him as if he was a boy, but he sort of he isn't. Like, so, yeah, but he is a real boy. Like, he wants to be a real boy. Yeah, exactly, but that's the whole thing. Like, I mean, I don't think that's actually going to look daft. I don't think that could. If it's a puppet and then Geppetto, you know, I think, I, I, I think I actually that could look 
quite good. Like, well, like a human fucking puppet. That's, uh, certainly they're doing like a motion yeah. capture song. Oh, like well, I probably, yeah. Jesus. I mean, when yeah. I said life action, I'm not going to say it's fucking the boy just pretending. Well, I mean, bitchy, bitchy Andy Serkis is snapping. He's not playing Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> well, he probably is. <laughs> no, I think Robert Downey Jr. is actually playing both uh, Geppetto and Pinocchio. I All think right, that was the, the plan. I mean, like. I mean obviously, Pinocchio's supposed to be a boy. Robert Downey Jr. is like fucking 50. He's big oil, oil head. Actually, no, that, that, that sounds kind of good. Like, so you, you, you would see reflections of Geppetto yeah. and Pinocchio again. Aye, no, that's that, the whole point. That, that's that's, that's not them looking that's reflections, and then there's looking fucking identical. They're going to make them look like fucking wood. There's all like fucking wooden head on them just now. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's, it was Robert Downey Jr. big wooden head. Big <laughs> <laughs> like wooden head version of Robert Downey. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it would be like in that uh, Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey played all the ghosts as well. Uh, so uh, like he's seen a bit of himself in each ghost. Uh, but they're about like fucking two hundred or something like that. There, they're not supposed to be five. They're about fucking two thousand years old. They're made. Out, I, I can't see how you can't get past that. He's made out of wood. He's going to look different now. <laughs> Uh, on, right. uh, you just, you just, <laughs> you just wouldn't, wouldn't up. I'm not having this, Michael. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to work. Right? You just get, there first. Just get down wooden down a junior and just, you know, wooden have him. Uh, and then just have him. Uh, I can look around. You just. You look around. You know what? I look around. But I would. <laughs> but I varnish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Ron Seal. And, uh, right, okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll move on to topics now. So, who wants to go first on topics? Topics, topics, topics. Never, never. Right. I'll go first on topics. Mine isn't really a topic. It's just I uh, kind of drunkenly just, just meandering. Aye, just uh, basically <laughs> Sean Coyle when they talk ten minutes on his own. No, no, it's not even. It's, it's not even so much out there. It's just, I very fucking drunkenly said last week and foolishly said that I was going to do like a, a topic about Fallen Noir and I had fuck all topic in my head. So uh, I'm just going to go on that thing about Fallen Noir and then I've just got a, a small question after. So await the lecture. Right. So what it is there's a uh, Really famous uh, film historian called Mark Bold. He had a really famous quote about Fallen Noir. The quote was that Fallen Noir is like an elusive phenomenon, right? And that it's always out of reach. Mm. Now, what he meant about that is a kind of interesting thing about Fallen Noir is that a while there's been this kind of decade, decades-long debate that Fallen Noir isn't actually a genre of cinema. Mm-hmm. Now, what they mean by saying that is that Fallen Noir is essentially just a style it's just a collection of aesthetic choices that kind of frame the film but don't have like a kind of definitive narrative goal or a narrative voice and like these critics who say that about Fallen Noir uh, kind of basically say that the style of Fallen Noir can be applied to any genre and obviously mostly sort of kind of crime films but it's not an actual genre in itself and I've always found that very interesting but I 100% fucking disagree with it now uh, the reason I do disagree with is whereas there's obviously an easily identifi- identifiable fucking visual style from the wire you've got your you know your common uh, like fedoras and you've got fucking chiaroscuro lighting you know dutch angles and stuff like that there and then you've got your tropes like a private investigator and you've got your femme fatales that's all well and good what's what's the joke big hats t- high trousers uh, no, it's, uh, fast talk high trousers oh, fast, talk, like, high fast talk high trousers but uh, they wear big hats as well uh, <laughs> they do wear big hats eh? <laughs> yeah, they were renowned for it back in the day like but the reason that the reason I think of Fallen Noir as its own genre is because there's a definite mood and an atmosphere to any fucking Fallen Noir you watch. There is a very identifiable fucking narrative structure. There's consistent themes, and <clears throat> the best thing about Fallen Noir is that I okay. The reason a lot of critics say the reason a lot of critics say that it's 
not its own genre is because it's too broad because you can have a film that focuses on like a private investigator which is the main one like you know like kiss me deadly mm. or the big sleep you can have one that focuses on cops like in the big heat you can have one that focuses on the everyman and detour or you can even have one that focuses on like a screenwriter or normal yeah. like an, mm. in a lonely place with humphrey bogart <clears throat> also you can have it in a city setting which is of course the, the main set you can have a rural like night hunter yeah. you can have it uh beach resort like uh key largo but the main reason that I think a film noir has its own voice and it's its own thing is because in every single film noir that you see, there is a massively cynical view of the world. Yep. And there is an incredibly bleak fucking tone that fucking permeates the whole film. Now, basically what every noir tells us at the very end is that humanity is essentially corrupt mm-hmm. and that people are capable of unbelievably Correct. great evil. And, you know, at a one as well, not even if they're fucking forced it. So... This all, uh, sorry, this also kind of fucking uh, raised itself because it was the first time in American cinema that this was done. It was the first time in American mm-hmm. cinema that there was these sort of characters because up until that point in American cinema, you had your, your classical view of like a hero. Obviously, you had the gangster films of the 30s, which are showing bad people, but they were always very mm-hmm. definitively bad and there was always a good force yep, yep. that was going against them. So the reason I say this about Fall Noir is that they essentially founded the anti-hero the reason for it is obviously because they were made just after the 1940s. There was a hangover from World War Two. Uh-huh. The whole of America had just seen this fucking... They had essentially just been uh, shown the horror of, of, uh-huh. of what people can do, of, of like this fucking grim reality. And then I think that, and this is where I'm getting into topic after a short lecture, is fucking... That cynicism and that pessimistic view of the world that Fall Noir introduced... Do you think then that that was the main cause of kind of maybe the cynicism now or pessimism in certain films? Do you think that that was maybe the starting point? Do well, basically what do you think is noir's influence? I am hmm. just quite sad now after everything. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of really bummed me out. So we can get back. We we'll start talking about Pinocchio oh, right. again if you want. Like Talking fucking Woody Jones Jr. But uh, are you? No, I, you that's not right, yeah, That's how you. <laughs> But um, it was something that uh, Marlon Brando said uh, a long time ago when, when somebody used to say that I looked uh, like pissed off or fucked off all the time. And, and he's, he always used to turn around and say, well, it's not easy knowing this much. Mm. And this is just one of his, <laughs> his quibs. It's a good life. And this is the sort of thing. And I actually think one of the most important things about film noir is that, I mean, um, you might associate it with, uh, you know, like a, a Gary Alon Coke and a 38, but actually the biggest weapon in nearly all film noirs is knowledge. Yep. The guy that comes out on top has the most knowledge. Yep. And that, that's that's why it, it does stand the test of time. That's why you have, like, the big Lebowski, which is an adaptation of the big sleep. And that is basically, a, it's a parody of film noir. That is, uh, uh, but I mean, I think when he says new things have come to light, it's mm. like a weapon, you know. I mean, it's always, it's constantly been the thing with film noir. It's just like, you're rich and you have power, but I fucking know stuff about you. Aye. So I, I have a you. weapon. I am more powerful than you because I have knowledge, and that's always that's why film noir won't die because that's just a thing that that, that is. It's just life. It, it is just life, but I think I mean I'll, I'll always frame that as in like you know people have money and they have guns, and it's like well I have this piece of knowledge, and no like money, no money or guns could stop me with this piece of knowledge. This kind of thing, and yeah. that's always been the thing. It, it, it's it's made it one of the most important, and, and that's why it does span. Uh, it does why it does span uh, genres. I mean, because it, it, you get into, you know, you can get into, you know, American politics. You can get, you know, you have like 
these things. I mean, even people say like things like all the president's men is no worry yeah. because they, you know, but I mean, it actually happened, you know, and I know like, like I deep throat and all in the, in the, the car park and stuff like that there. But, but that's always been the thing for me is that, so I'm always going to laugh at that one, like, but, uh, it happened. But, um, there was one thing in uh have you seen actually i'll say one thing there's a a novel by uh dash called mm -hmm. red harvest i think we read yeah. it we did we did there you go but uh that story is actually the same story that's in a fussful dollars it's yeah. actually it's identical to it and the actual the main tool of a fussful dollars is that clint eastwood knows more than the two families mm -hmm. and so he can put he's one man between two big giants which is a metaphor of anything which is a metaphor of uh two big political systems it's a metaphor of you know just two gangs that don't like each other mm -hmm. it's a metaphor of you know two people that don't like each other just one person has more knowledge than the two of them put together and that's why he wins that's always the thing that's why you film noir i'll just keep going that's exactly. all it is okay. you have to, oh, go ahead sorry chris well i was gonna say like about film noir like another element to it is just like you know people just don't give a fuck <laughs> like, say like uh escape from new york like uh, uh snake plissken has to be kind of like a from a film noir. Aye, exactly. Aye. It's almost like he, a he kind of based. He based him on Clint as well. Clint that's why Lee Van Cleef is his trying, boss. That's what I was trying to say. Is a film noir basically created the kind of modern American anti-hero because before that there was no such thing as an anti-hero in American cinema, mm. whereas all the characters in film noirs, you'd be hard pushed to find a truly good character. Even the good characters are that heroes, bunny ears, mm. heroes are massively fucking flawed in some Aye. way. Like, Aye. you know what I mean? And the, the, the point that I was trying to get on the is that I don't like the fact that Fall Noir, even though it's so easy, I think because Fall Noir stands out because it's so stylistic as well as, you know, thematic, is that Fall Noir stands out because you can just identify with, you know, the, 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 the cheer school lighting and the fedoras and stuff like that and private eyes yeah. and, you know, kind of crime thriller that I was chatting about. But then I think that Fall Noir in its own right has so much more to offer because it does have these fucking massive themes that run through it. And it was the first, you know, fucking genre of film they kind of... Mm shine a light on that to America because before then it was all fucking cotton candy and Broadway melodies and shit like Aye. that you know what I mean to go back to what I've said at the start it's not easy knowing this much is right I'm kind of going to metaphor if, if you know for example you've watched a lot of violent films when you were younger yeah. or you've watched a lot of 18s when you were 14 or 13 like we thought I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And all have, you have that disaffectedness. Yeah. You know, and these sound really properly, they fucking shock you. Mm. 
And so that is that thing of just, you know, you sort of bet around, sort of slightly disaffected. And I think that is the thing that's channeled on. They all yeah. these, these, these lead characters, you know, I mean, they, they did it in a different way in the Big Lebowski because he was stoned all the time. It was yeah. the same idea, but in, in, in that way, he was disaffected. And so the thing about knowing too much, that's what I'm saying. It's just you've seen a lot of stuff. You know, and you know a lot of stuff, so it takes a lot to shock you or to prompt you to do anything. Yeah. So I suppose that, that's kind of what I was trying to say about it's not easy knowing this much, and it's just like you just you have it all there. You know. Definitely. Okay, we'll move on to my topic now, and uh, I put a post up on Reddit a few weeks ago, just asking for film topics, and uh, I got a response. So this is from Hump Money Eleven. <laughs> what a handle. And if you'd like to submit your own uh, film topics, uh, you can search Let's Talk More Movies on Reddit and you should be able to find the post there. Or you can email us at letstalkmoremovies at gmail.com. Plug! (laughs) (laughs) Plug. Okay, so Huntmoney11 asked, Today we see much more violent sex and F-bombs in films. Most of these directors and critics argue that showing this type of human nature is true art, while some viewers claim it is just too much. What do you think is better for films? I think it's a fucking broad point. To be honest, it's, it's that broad. Like You would say that violence is considered true art. Maybe when violence is, is done and represented in the way that it's not gratuitous and right, like maybe like the likes of Come and See, like the 1985 fucking uh, war film, probably the best war film ever made, then it's, it's not really art in a way, but it adds the narrative to create good art. But then... Gratuitous violence is never art. It is, it, and for whatever reason, human beings seem to be attracted to it, and they seem to want to watch it. And I'm not even going to fucking delve on that can of worms, but uh, it's more just a. I think it's it's just eye candy most of the time. Like even like people say, oh Tarantino and Kill Bill, where she's fucking slicing that fuck at all them Japanese boys, and like it's all. <laughs> no, but like I mean, but she, well, she's cut them in two and stuff like that. There, they so she, all Japanese. She's in Japan. <laughs> Well, maybe I do Asian people in Asian, know, Asian she's men. She's in Japan. She's Actually, Japan well, either way, but Japanese Asian men. She's fucking cutting the fuck out of them and stuff like that. And like people, are, oh, you know, it's, and it says this and all. Oh, it's true art and fucking blah blah blah. It's not. It's gratuitous. It is a fucking. It is gratuitous. It, it, it's just it's just a scene. They they, they shock the senses and and make you kind of sit up and you're saying, well, fucking hell, what's happening here? No body or woman. You know what I mean? That's like fucking. But I mean, I know, I'm, I'm being serious. When I, no, I'm trying to be serious. When I'm saying this. Like it's like. It is just eye candy. Yeah. Well, I think <coughs> there's only certain films where it, it really annoys me. Let's say uh, Hostel, who directed that again? Eli Ross. Ah, yeah, That stuff's crap, but like a wee bit Is of that produced by Tarantino or something? Yeah, something like that. It balls, it balls wrong, we know point, but the, like, I like, like Robocop, wouldn't be Robocop without the, the like, the, the, the mad Verhoeven violence and John Carpenter, like the thing. What would that? Oh, hey, you've come to the right podcast. <laughs> you might talk about John Carpenter. You know, I, <laughs> like, uh, but I think uh, I don't know. I don't have a problem with it unless it's a shape. Well, see, I mean, like I, I don't have, <laughs> I, no, no, I, I don't have any, I don't have any. Problem. Jesus screen, Christ, right? I don't have any problem with violence whatsoever on screen or whatnot. But I'm well, just. What about having a Pinocchio? <laughs> Pinocchio just starts stabbing boys with his nose. Just <laughs> then, like, you know, like, Pinocchio started holding a boy with his nose. Just uh, <laughs> oh my lord, calm. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> Violent sex and f bombs all along. Uh, Pinocchio hold just <laughs> no bothering f bombs either. Because everybody who walks around and doesn't say fucking say fucker or anything. 
Their stops and I stop and you think, right, fair enough, there's no point in sitting down to get back up again, but big various, especially as a man who stands up <laughs> and there's about 10 fucking stops to his gaff, like, what the fuck's that about? What is that about? Secret serial killer, I'm telling you, <laughs> beware of any man in the bus who doesn't sit down. <laughs> anyway, going on to gratuitous violence and Fulham. You can't be just uh, giving a seat in all the late, but well, that was no, like, that's you, what I'm saying, there's you, about, you no, like, no, 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 that, 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 that happened, and then you just spotted, no, this fucking stander, no, that, no, but the bus, the bus is empty, right? Yeah, the bus is empty. The bus is empty. The bus is empty, and this here's still standing. What's that about? I must have started that. Anyway, gratuitous violence and Fulham. I think that if it's done with violent sex and so yeah, well, yeah, well, just basically anything that's fucking kind of against yeah, violent sex. Any for for me, it's that see if it's done with context, and it is still entertaining to a point. And fair enough, but then see when you just step the line and you're just doing it for the sake of doing it, and it's not serving a purpose. Then, like Hostel, because Hostel, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, Hostel fits on the, the, the kind of genre of Gorno, uh, basically gory porno, where it's just exploitative. It's it's basically people who, I'm not saying that, that Hostel's aimed, I'm not I'm not saying that everybody who's watched Hostel or a Gorno film is this way, but it's almost like you're you're kind of getting off on the amount of violence. Uh, you know what I mean? Like definitely, like uh, Hostel like gets people balls. getting their, their eyes blowtorch and all. See, that's... But John, I think John Kirbner's violence is always... And Paul Verhoeven, they're the two that always... Like Escape from L.A., like all the kind of gore in that as well. We, what do you call him? In the hospital, we... Kurt Russell? No, in the hospital, we... Bruce Campbell. Oh, he's the plastic surgeon. But it's like, I mean, that is done, like I was saying before, they serve an art of point, and it's not fucking over the top, and it's not just there, just a fucking shocky. But with Alexa Hostel and mm. your fucking saws and stuff like that, even though I do think that the first saw, which first was saw the first saw, is a really good film because the first saw people know you have just the listeners can't see you, but I got mad props. We're all high five them here. What I was going to say is that that first saw, because all the other saws, and that's Luke and Sarah. The first saw you saw. Yeah, first saw I saw. The first saw I saw, which is also the first saw, that is Luke and Sarah, like the fucking, the birthplace of like fucking sort of Gorno and stuff like that. But it's kind of been dragged down by all its sequels, which just kind of focus on the violence. And what the first actual saw actually has a compelling sort of mystery and a storyline. And the yeah. violence, it is gory, but it only serves the purpose of how grim the situation is. Whereas all the other ones, it's just, we don't really have a plot. Somebody gets kidnapped, or we're going to do this wee fucking shitty riddle, and then we're going to fucking torch somebody's fucking eyes out or something like that, you know what I no, mean? No, but you see, the, the, the first saw, <laughs> though, it, it is... Nose, call it, off somebody's banjo string it, or something it like that. It isn't actually that... It isn't actually that gory. I mean, the most gory scene is spoilers for Saw is when he actually cuts off his foot, and you don't actually even see that. You just <laughs> no see you, you just see him dragging himself away with no foot. Like <laughs> hey, the worst, the worst foot hang, the worst foot. <laughs> The worst, right? This is this right. is this is Chris Norris. The worst foot thing in cinema. I'm running a just a four-way contest here between the four of us, and whoever gets it, one's fifty p. What's the first? What's the worst foot, foot scene in a film? Because 
Right, oh, no, it's Misery, it's Misery. I was going to say Misery. That's bad, it's bad. Must be P. Well, te- <laughs> well, no, hang on, hang on. Put that in his wristband now. Yeah. <laughs> te- technically, that's ankles. Yeah, it is. Well, <laughs> just, uh, well. You can see the digits like <laughs> hanging off that foot, like <laughs> no gratuitous ways because I haven't even spoken on a talk. Oh, go ahead. Um, it, 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 in my opinion, it boils down to just taste, and yeah. if it's useful to the story, grand. But I think I think happened Tarantino when he did Reservoir Dogs, he did Pulp Fiction, and then he did Jackie Brown, and then I think. A lot of his fans, his B-movie fans, all the stuff he was referring to, he got a wee bit insecure, and then he went back and did Kill Bill, which is just this over-the-top B-movie, fucking massive, high-production B-movie violence, and I think he's been sort of a wee bit scared and sort of just stuck into that kind of thing for a wee while. I mean, to be honest, I think Django was fucking, in my opinion, the first proper eternity form of, of his, and I actually thought... As much as Death Proof was an hour we passed each a lot there, I mm. thought Death Proof was actually really good too. Death Proof and fucking uh, Django, I thought, were fucking cracking films. Like. If there's a film that's just kind of balls out like fucking bath action and people are going mental and shit them up or not, you know what you're getting yourself on for? Mm. As long as it's not kind of exploiting fucking violence and, and yeah. like being really over the fucking top violence. I mean, but then at the same time, if somebody thinks that it's art, you can do violence as an art, but it has to be very considered and uh, very well executed. Too much irreversible. Yeah, that's uh, a perfect example of uh, violence being very well considered and serving uh, a fucking massive uh, narrative point. That's probably actually uh, that is I think it's the perfect example. Yeah, it is the perfect example. Serbian film is probably the wor- it's worst the, example. The worst example because that is a. I, I don't, I don't think that deserves to be a fucking film. Nah. It's fucking for me. Shit. That's a, that, for me. That's it's just so offensive and that, so like, I do not want. That's a portal film. And I remember at the time that the director of a Serbian film came out and said. Oh, well, it's just that, and, Al- and it's kind of like Salo as well, mm. uh, by mm. Pasolini many mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. They're completely not carbon copies, only they're like 40 years apart. Salo by Pasolini, and then I don't remember the name of the, the, the director of Serbian film, but they both came out and they were all, oh, but it's pastitious and it's an allegory for the fascist sitting off. Fuck off, mugger. You just want to do fucking, no, but honestly, fuck off, mugger, because you just want to go really over the top and show as much violence as possible, and if anything, just fucking demean women. And just, you know, making a sort of fucking sexual right. thing. Well, <clears throat> the thing I would say about violent sex and swearing all and films is you can you can always tell for yourself when it kind of oversteps the mark and when it is gratuitous. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. as you said, like, if, if you go on there, like, fucking action film, like, fucking crank or something, mm-hmm. you know what you're going on for. It's balls uh, out of the bath. You're clocking on that guy. Mental shit. Chris, like, Chris, you're putting your brain in a pickle jar. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like, like we said, it's, it's all about context, and it's all about how far you take it as well, you know what I mean? And so I think it's just, it's it's always going to be a personal thing for yourself, mm-hmm. and, but you, you cannot, but you can always tell when someone's being creative or not for yourself. Like, I mean, like, I would say, like, I, I enjoyed Spring Breakers. I know it's a, it's a kind of vice culture. I enjoyed that too. Either yeah. people actually really like it or people hate it, but mm-hmm. there's, there's no doubt, there's no doubt in saying that there is a lot of gratuitous mm. scenes of gears and bikinis in that of film course, that doesn't yeah. have to be there. Like, and and that, I hate all that kind of aspect of it. It's about tits and explosions. Like, but, yeah, but, but the, the thing I enjoyed about that film is just kind of the way it was kind of similar to Palo Alto is like how it's kind of cut together and just the general vibe of it. Yeah. Okay, uh, Colin or Chris, who wants to go? You go for it, Colin. Let's go for cooking my final. 
Um, no, I was just having a sort of thought. That it sort of that's better be a second episode of True Detective the other night. There, you know, mm. it was just thinking about actors that that work with each other, and like you would see actors or connections with actors. You know, because you know, Colin Farrell worked with Ren Gleason, uh, who's yes. you know, and uh, Rachel McAdams worked with Donald Gleason and stuff, and you know. This kind of thing, and it got me onto the idea of actually thinking about actors uh, who constantly work with each other. You know, like uh, you know, like a Brad Pitt and George Clooney, or like you know, even Stanley Tucci and Meryl Streep have worked together a few times. And uh, yeah. you know, Wesley Snipes, Woody Harrelson, two films. But I'm just I was just, I was just in my head. I was just wondering if if those do you think does that. Uh, discredit a film or does it give it more uh does it give it more credence because are you are you going to see the film for the performance or are you going to see it uh for the bullish aspect uh, that kind of thing because i mean between the two actors outside of the film because i think true detective is a really good example of how not bullish it is because i think them have worked together four times yeah i think they did eight tv they did a couple of different things together but i think that was their fourth time working together woody harrelson and matthew mcconaughey yeah and, and they are actually best muckers from the night. Oh, they are. They're really good they? friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they fucking sucking bongos with each other. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's besides the point. But uh, it's just, I think that's a really good example because it's not like uh, they're just hanging out or something and just having beers or something. You know, it's not like, oh, it's this sort of easy sort of thing. I mean, yeah. true detectives, it's a fairly it's fucking challenging it's uh, a, script. A, and the a first series thing, is yeah. a masterpiece and I mean, the second series is hopefully on route to be able to master uh, exactly so I'm just I'm just sort of wondering if that you know I'm just I think that's a good example of how it isn't but I'm just sort of asking that is it just specifically so. actors working with each other or directors and actors actors I, I was thinking just more actors but just I mean actors. if you want to I don't know if you want to go ahead I mean there's sort of the thing that's I don't really see it as an issue and because see if two actors get on well with each other they're going to work better with each other and there's going to be more chemistry and that's going to be shown on screen and I think like sort of a classic one you go back to maybe the films aren't of great quality you know like uh, see no evil see no evil hear no evil is but like like you know uh, Gene, well, Gene, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor they were kind of uh, like, totally like, stole were, my point I was uh, already jump on there with yeah, Gene Wilder but, but like I mean I think they're the most famous pairing uh, I think it's, it's, it's more as well that maybe they were the first one they kind of but but they, 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 they actually produced that, that's actually part of the point is that they constantly produce these kind of yeah. wacky comedies together whereas that they, for, for that example you know Matt Damon sorry no, Matt ahead. Damon George Clooney and Brad Pitt they produce different things together like you know like yeah. For example, they're in Ocean's Eleven, and then Matt Damon has a small part in Soriana, and George Clooney has a big part in it, yeah. and this kind of stuff. And then I think the only meeting that they have in the film is in like an, an elevator or something like that. There, yeah. and you know, things like that. There, I'm just wondering, as, as you know, I could turn on a fucking a, a listy question, which I don't like, but I'm just sort of. I, I mean, like it's, I, I think it's kind of him, like a production posse, you know, like uh, people who kind of work with each other a lot, the production posse, but see if I look at like the, the point I made there now. See if these actors get together. And they make good films, and obviously because they know each other and they get on really well with each other outside of the kind of industry and their own personal lives, then obviously that's going to create yeah. you know a more of a buzz. Then why not? I, I mean, like you, you could go through, and again, you were saying about the last. You could go through a list of examples. Like you've got your 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 Jonah Hulls, your Seth Rogans. You know, you, you've got like the likes of Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. Quality, I think it's it's alright. Like I yeah, and I, I mean the thing is as well, and I mean you'd be hard pressed to find two actors who work with each other a lot 
where all the films are bad because the reason <coughs> that they make more films with each other is because the first one or two that they done was of good quality and they keep it going because people want to see it. Do you do wonder? I mean, the thing that, the thing I'm coming up with is that you do wonder if, if you're going to see the stars or you're going to see the performance because well, well that's a, oh sorry, I was going to say for sure. Al Patch and John Cares. <laughs> John Cazale, Al Pacino. Like, aye, aye. I mean, he died, like, but they were in the theatre and all the other, and they definitely, it wasn't like you were... There was an understanding. Be, and even back then, it wasn't you weren't going to see stars, because that was all their first films, yeah. and they're all Atmos. Aye. And they would just knew how, they had a good way of acting together. Aye. As badass. Aye. But then, like, uh, probably, I don't know, some people like that. Uh, Jackie Chan and fucking Chris Rock or Chris, Chris Tucker. Pesh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that was a franchise. That was a franchise. But uh, no, what, what I was going to say is on the other side of what Chris was saying, like that you can it can be produced just to kind of get a kind of following because oh, the, whole, yeah, yeah. the whole Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor thing, like they they weren't like best friends yeah. at the side of the film. They, they that, that was manufactured. It's not, that, that, it's, that it's, it's, it's not that they didn't even get along. I can't remember if it was Gene Wilder or Richard Pryor, mm. but one of them came out when... Aye. I think it was Gene Wilder came out when Richard they, they Pryor. They didn't hit each other at all. They, yeah. he, he just, they just, they just, they just different people. Yeah. Like, I think it was when Richard Pryor died that Gene Wilder came out and there was this whole media newspaper bulb up thing about oh like Richard Pryor and Jim other best friends that's why they make bombs all the time and there was sort of like an outside uh, sort of interest and that's why uh, a lot of people uh, want to say and as well because they were two of the funniest men on the planet at that point but then somebody interviewed Jim Wilder and he really just fucking sacked everybody's estimations because he was all oh, you know what me and Richard work with each other like you know four or five times and he was a nice man and we got on well but we shared nothing in common we didn't hang about with each other outside of these films like you know uh, what I mean uh, so it, it just it's it's a strange thing because I do think that definitely there's a small part of it that people who go to see films think oh well they they work with each other before and they're two great stars yeah, and yeah. they've got you know a sort of thing going I like both of them I'll go see it there because their last one was funny but then at the same time looking at it from maybe a, a, a filmic point the reason that you know their films were good in the first place and the reason that they've got the audience is because they've obviously got some sort of chemistry so yeah. why not because chemistry is the main thing between actors and the you know, if you've got chemistry, very obvious chemistry between two actors, and fucking why not chuck them in another film, which they can create ca- because they're actors and they're going to create new characters. It's, it's, like it's not like they're uh, going to be the same character in every film. You know what I mean? Are uh, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone still going out? Who knows? Because the it's not Spider Man anymore. Nobody cares. I about know, him, like. I know. I hear, but <laughs> she's acting. No, but the she's going to be calm now. I heard they were written because they cast her as a. Asian and that new film. Mm. Oh yeah, yet again we keep going back because we were talking about that a few weeks back as well. That it, it was a bit, it was a bit fucked up. It's that uh, like Rachel Lufton is what they call it, like, but she's supposed to be. I'm not sure if she's Chinese or Korean. But she's, she's like half Asian. Yeah, she's supposed to be like uh, like an Asian woman anyway. And obviously Emma Stone is not fucking Asian in any way. And like I said a few weeks back, see if you want to have an Asian character, then cast a fucking Asian. You know what I mean? <laughs> Obviously, like the Hollywood suits and all there have another thing about it. Like, oh no, it has to be a superstar. She has to fall in box office. You know what I mean? Stop being kind of semi fucking racist and just do it. Well, what I was going to say about Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone is that in the Amazing Spider Man films, they were the best part of them films. And mm. just the chemistry between them together on screen, you just you just watch them and you're just like, God, just 
fuck right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like if it, if they if they did another film together, I think it'd be amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna solve oh, no. the mics away. Oh, we're gonna salvage this. Oh, oh Jesus, 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 Jesus. Hey, sorry there, listener. We had a slight technical difficulty with the microphone falling into a bath of beer. <laughs> well, it's it's beer it's beer with ice cubes, but yeah, technical difficulties. Uh, so, Heron, you want to round off your topic? Um, I no, I just want to kind of what what I say about the whole thing and the my thoughts about it was was just um. It's it's a hard thing to say, but but I mean, essentially, why we watch films, why we want to watch films, is is we want to watch quality films, yep. really. And if people are going to continue to work with each other, yeah, you know, that's that's fine. Like I mean, I mean, obviously, you're always watching a film in the back of your mind. You're all oh, fuck. They would do that together. They did mm-hmm. that together together. And so there is this thing in the back of your mind. You're going, oh, I wonder what chats they have when they're sitting having a cup of coffee when it breaks. You know that kind of stuff that's yeah. in your head. And sometimes it can be distracting. You know, from getting into the characters, but I mean, it doesn't matter if you're producing quality. Like for example, even Gandolfini and yep. Brad Pitt and killing himself yep. or something. If you're constantly just producing quality, or like I mean, one of the oldest ones was uh, Kirk uh, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. They did seven films together. Yes. You know, if if it's constant quality, I don't think it matters. But I mean, obviously the other side of that coin, if you want to make money and that kind of thing, I mean, it's it's going to keep happening anyway. There's two actors, you know, like the, the Richard Pryors and the Gene Wilders and all, and they are mind-making films. But I mean, at the same time, for, for their time, I mean, like, they were, they and were they half decent films. Too, yeah, like, yeah. Are, that's what you I mean, like, you're never going to get away from that thing of outside light, because even though you're watching a film and you're fucking mm. totally uh, engrossed in the fucking narrative and stuff like that, you're uh, never going to be able to release the fact that these are two people actually you know, uh, making a show and, and they're actually fucking acting. Uh, and it wouldn't affect me so much when I'm watching the film because I'd be kind of you know sucked into the film. But then after that, you'd be saying, "I wonder what you know they're chatting about." I wonder, I wonder if they have a good working relationship. Blah 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 blah. But I think essentially, like you were saying, if it comes down to it, if the films are good, if they're of high quality, it doesn't matter. Exactly, Michael. Uh, Chris, I believe you have a topic. I have one. I think I'd go for a music scoring topic. Oh. Uh, based on two things, a couple of weeks ago I went to see Ma- the new Mad Max. Mm-hmm. I thought the design was brilliant looking, and it did have madness about it. And for me, the thing that just fucked it and made it me give it four out of ten was the just generic Hollywood music on. Yeah, I kept watching it going, "This would be brilliant if it had some kind of mad John Carpenter score going mad." Something says, or just anything <laughs> fucking mad. But instead, it was all like. Uh, junkie XL, he's one of Hans Zimmer's crew. Zimmer's Zimmer jobs, man. But, uh, <laughs> and then yeah, the second... got sec- a fucking Zimmer job on it. And the second <laughs> person, the thing is, uh, our James Horner died, what, last week? Yeah. And, uh, it's funny, because that's my first CD ever owned, was Aliens by James Horner. Now, that's the only thing that I like that he did. Yeah. Which is funny. But anyway, my point is, is that did you ever watch a film where you were watching it and you're like, oh, fucking music ruined that for me? Or the music did something. Yeah. That has the music ever affected in the film in a way that it stood out as the top thing? Hundred, a hundred percent. Right. Oh, I think yeah. it's it's a really famous. That's a cracking one. It's a fucking absolute <laughs> belter. Uh, no, you don't fully quote me this. I can't really remember the percentages, I'm but quote I every single word. Like. <laughs> I'm nearly sure that George Lucas 
once said that music is 60% of film. Because music basically... Uh, what's his name? Alfred Hitchcock said it. Was it Hitchcock? I thought it was George Lucas. But in a way, the, the thing that he... Bi- that thing, that thing. <laughs> the thing that he basically meant is that obviously music permeates every scene. And you think about it, right? And that's the thing that I've always thought about. And people, I think, really, really undercut the importance of music in cinema. See, if you watch some of the most dramatic scenes of all time, some of the best scenes that you've ever seen in your life, imagine that scene in silence. The whole effect, the whole dram- the whole drama, everything that has been built in me is lost. Music is so much a part of cinema. They go fucking hand in hand with each other. And it doesn't get, yeah. I personally think, that much notice. Uh, to answer your question, again, they come on to John Carpenter and you mentioned there now. But see, when I think of John Carpenter, I obviously think his films, but one of the first stylistic things that pops into my head about John Carpenter is his synthy scores. That's and brilliant. they add so much to his fucking films because they're so different. Uh-huh. In the likes of fucking Halloween, in the likes of Escape from New York. Yeah, but yeah. then another one that I've watched recently, just to kind of contrast that, is uh, Calvary. Uh, the the Brenton Gleeson. Uh, uh. Abs- for me, maybe one of the best Irish films ever made. And, and hopefully, as an Irish it's film a, podcast, a, it's a good, um, we should do a thing right. about Irish film very, very soon. Because you know uh, it's something that, we, it's something that we've ignored. And there's a lot uh, of good stuff there definitely. that maybe a lot of the listeners don't know about. But we'll get by Brendan in. Yeah, we'll get Brendan in. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get Brendan in. Get his agent. There's some McCalvary, and I mean, like, I'm not saying it's the greatest score that's ever been in the film. It is very kind of simple, and it's it's very. It, it, a lot of people point that like kind of Irish or fantasy films or dramatic films of like all oh, the Enya syndrome, or just get Enya and singing these long drawn. Shall we fun- just get fucking Enya? Aye, exactly, exactly. But get, get fucking these, Enya. Getting these long drawn notes, and it just makes it kind of. Uh, uh, it kind of makes it dramatic and it kind of makes it bigger in scope and stuff like that but it's 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 not a new does it but there's a score in Calvary and it just really nicely rounds off these kind of themes of morality and themes of death and themes of just it's, being it's a episodic. good person I think the score is and very it, episodic and it adds so much and without that score that, that score for me defines the narrative points and right. it's a fucking it excellent does, thing there was a thing you were saying, remember, Chris, a few years ago, where there was a score for a John Carpenter film. I can't remember the exact story you told me, but it was like a really complicated score, and then he just changed it for some really simple. What, what was that about again? Oh, it was in the, what do you call it, the thing. Because mm. you know Ennio Morricone did the score yep. for it. And uh, John Carpenter was up there, like, and he, he couldn't, Ennio couldn't speak English, and John Carpenter couldn't speak Italian, so it was just all like, he went over here and then he was just fucking mad and stuff. And he saw, no, I'll just do something with a wee bit less notes. But then come back. Aye. And then you listen to the score CD. And it's all this orchestra going mad. Like for when the dog's turning in and all Aye. the thing. And it's like, oh, it's just like, John, John, John. So then, John Carter. John Carter's like, I fuck it. Put some wommy self note. It's far better. That's I love about fucking. That's I love about John Carter. Was that John Carpenter has always fucking said himself that he's a very fucking amateur musician and obviously it's just keyboard and something stuff like that but any fucking score he's done for any one of his films yeah. it's no coincidence that's massively fucking iconic but they're all so fucking simple you know yeah. what I mean uh, apart from the only one big trouble in old China gets a bit mad that last scene where it's when Kurt fucking shoots the scene and the rocks knock him out <laughs> and the music airs mad it's all like just like kind of programmed synth loops but it's mad <laughs> demos 
you were answering your question actually the, the thing that there was one I'd seen remember being with DC Public Enemies a couple of years ago yeah. oh aye a couple of bottles of wine in their pockets you know coke uh, wine and, uh, standard coke wine it was just uh, <laughs> inventor what's the fuck was that last scene with uh, Marion Coulthard and the Texan that had shot John Dillinger and it's just this big whitewash kind of room and all did he punch his ticket aye, he, get along? He, uh, he, he punched John's ticket like, he definitely did like and uh, and so anyway, pick a trousers. Anyway, <laughs> 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 but anyway, we went down on the way, and then, uh, she, she was sitting there in the room, and he comes in, and he says, "Uh, what did John? Do, what did John say to you?" He says he whispered something in my ear, and he says, "Bye, bye, Blackbird." There, there's a legend of did he say it? Did he not? Did he even say anything at all? Did the boy yeah. just fully punch his ticket, or was he half? You know. Was he was he half dead or whatever? And he just oh said, no! Did you not hear the actual thing about what he said? Bye bye blackbird. No, it's like it act, no, like some person came out. It's like oh no, they know exactly what they said. John Dillinger. Hi. Where was he? He said. It's just a scene where it's just all like. And she, she's she's fucking sitting there snapping because John's dead. And then, what do you call it? Your man comes out. <laughs> and he's, he's just all, uh, bye bye. John sent you a message or whatever. What do you say? And she's like, bye bye, Blackbird. And then just the score, just like, <laughs> I was just like, oh, fuck off. Uh, Seriously. Like, yeah, you know, it was just like, uh, the rest of the film was, it was actually, uh, actually, the rest of the film was. Too subtle. That's right. Eh? Very. It's the whole whole film is yeah, overly exactly. subtle. What, what and then there's like stupid fucking. Wah, what does you know? Bye Bye Blackbird mean in that context? Because I can't remember. I said that has name for her. Blackbird. Uh, because what, I think with the first time they danced, they listened to a song called oh, Blackbird or yeah. Bye Bye Blackbird or whatever, and they used to oh, dance, okay. and he says, "This is just like you or something." But it's just him saying bye. And so he used to call her Blackbird, and then uh, when the Texan sort of, who coincidentally was the boy who took down Bonnie and Clyde. Yep. We bit a fact. Uh, when he listened to it, didn't stab Swayze, no. He no, didn't stab Swayze, no. Swayze's on But, uh, anyway, uh, this was the thing he, he whispered in his ear was, uh, Bobby Blackbird. And he, he, I think he didn't even know what it meant, so he just yeah. told her, he says, What did he say? And he said, Bobby Blackbird. And it was just this big fucking wow. It was just fucking really because annoying. That, that in itself. It's, it's just, a really anti Michael yeah, Mann exactly, thing you do exactly. as well. Like, because it's, it's really triumphant. Obviously, Michael Mann fucking likes to keep it a wee bit realist mm. in that. But for a scene that is so fucking very obviously built up, they have this fucking kind of dramatic fucking high point. There's no need for music there. I mean, like, I, I think that most directors wouldn't yeah. go for that. So it's strange. Man, man actually notoriously cuts all the scores as well. Mm. I mean, yeah, you had all these pieces. Like, if it's there, Michael Mann wanted it to be there. You know, yeah, he was yeah, all yeah, put yeah. that in. So who knows? Yeah, like Goldenthal can get a bit operatic sometimes with them big things. So, yeah. I mean, he did it. Who knows if it was his first choice? But I remember watching something where L.A. Goldenthal about Michael Mann and how he cut the music. And he's, like, the director of it. So, like, all the music the way it is is where he's all, well, we're keeping that there. He's pretty hands on. Like, all the editing. Like, I know. He cuts music. Cuts. He, he, he's he's very hands on. Yeah, but I, mean, I think it takes like six me. months to edit the songs. Like, fucking hell, that's a fucking long. Yeah, it takes fucking ages because yeah. he over he, he like that over shits, but he shits like fuck. Like, huh? You're not be burned off. I'd be <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I just be. I'll just fucking take it off me. I'll just 
care what happened. You know what? <laughs> I don't give a fuck. Uh, <laughs> I know. I mean, do you know what? He gets fucking results. Like, you know what I mean? Have you ever seen the heat like. in the Dawn Bar? What? Have <laughs> you ever watched Aye. heat in the Dawn Bar? Aye. <laughs> Look, there, you were saying there was a local bar. They fucking stuck heat on. Yeah. <laughs> just this tiny wee bar. And there's like, like three... Stodgy, stodgy old Irish men. The last thing you expect, you maybe expect a Gaelic game, a fucking hurling game, or maybe yeah. that BBC. But they're news. all telling you who's sure. up heat zone. Well, why are heat? Up heat zone. Are they all sat silent just watching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you fucking up, watch heat zone. Um, the thing uh, the score kind of ticked me out of was uh, I actually brought it up before when we were on by Hans Zimmer was uh, twelve years slave. Which I actually really enjoyed the film. And Shit. <laughs> no, but uh, even when when Ch- Twelve Years Slave was out and it got all the whole Oscar buzz and all, I heard people talking about like it was a bit of a hard watch and all that air kind of. I I didn't really get that from it. Like mm. it was a really well made film and I and I enjoyed watching it. And obviously it's about a terrible subject. And all I air. found it awfully fucking patronizing. I'm like, okay. Well, that's whatever, but, uh, sorry, did you completely just your opinion? I don't mean to ever say, like, that's, that's your opinion, anything, but right, what, what I'm getting on to was, uh, <laughs> that, that theme that they have in, uh, 12 Years Slave is called Solomon's yeah, Theme by Hans yeah. Zimmer, which is, we've talked about, we talked about this, we see it's the exact, on the 10th episode, we seem to be going back to everything else. <laughs> we this episode with. 3, we talked about Yeah, that we've one. come uh, full circle with this. Uh. Wait, so- uh, Solomon's theme is uh, basically oops. the exact same as time from uh, Inception. Inception yeah. uh, and they really overuse that theme in that film. It's played about uh, six or seven times. So uh, just every time he has a quiet moment to himself, it's played again. And yes. it's, every time it's played, it just kind of tucked me out of it. Because like, like, I enjoy that piece of music. It's, re- it's really emotional, however. It brings yeah. up the feels. But uh, <laughs> it just can't, it just took me out because I know it's essentially from Inception, and it's it's yeah. just a bit odd. A very interesting point as well. We're talking about ruining off all the podcasts as a whole, but they ruined off this podcast. Is that you were saying that you didn't find Twelve Years a Slave like shocking? Obviously, it's about this fucking awful subject, slavery, woeful fucking thing. I find Django more shocking. Yeah, but the thing is, is that the the violence isn't that shocking. But and tying in Django too, what you just said. I think it's because we have been sort of desensitized to the gratuitous violence you're talking about. That the violence in Twelve Years a Slave actually seems a wee bit tamer, even though it's treated in a way more fucking realistic manner. So that's why I think it kind of had some wee bit more. And as well, when you know that it is actually this shit happened in slavery and it's fucked. It's not some song dreamt up by some fucking action writer or whatever. Yeah, well, just to get clear, I'm not sagging off film. I really oh no 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 no. I'm not I'm not saying that. I I totally agree. I'm just saying that as a side point. You know, I think that's an interesting thing to look at. I speaking about the recycling music. uh, Just there was a thing that uh, Mike Biggis said in a book I just finished called Digital Filmmaking. If there's any filmmakers out there, it's a really short read, really succinct, brilliant. It's it's the director of uh, Leaving Las Vegas. And uh, he invented the fig rig for the cameraman out there. You know, that big steering wheel looking thing that you put your camera on. Um, but he, he had a thing about uh, music where he said he had made a film at one point and then the producer came in. I think I was telling you, Chris, there recently about it. Where uh, he, the producer came in and just completely got rid of the music. He didn't like the music that was on the film. And. Uh, when he made Leaving Las Vegas, because it was actually music he composed, because the film was uh, <clears throat> it was it was done to a budget, yeah. 
and so he actually composed it himself and he wrote parts of it himself and this kind of stuff because he used to be a musician but uh he ended up using it on leaving las vegas and right. he, he handed it to nicholas cage and elizabeth Shue and said this is going to be the theme for you two your two characters um but this producer after seeing leaving las vegas and you know the success it had he sent him a message saying blah, 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 love the film blah, blah, blah. And, and, and they went on to say uh the music the, the music was great i really like the music in it Hi. And, he, and he said uh, that's interesting because it was the exact same score that was rejected from that film ah, and he used it on leaving las vegas so he replied to him and he said uh so on so on thanks very much for the reply but he says did you notice it was the music that you removed from that film was the same music that was used for leaving las vegas Fucking right. and, uh, and the book and he said uh I never heard from him again. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Fucking fair play to me as well oh, as a young oh, director at the time. Fucking build up the Hollywood suits. Right. So like fucking yeah. right. Michael, we've reached the end of topics. Is it recommendation time? Uh, mm. Just for recommendations, I would like to get into competition time. Yeah! Competition time. Prizes, prizes, prizes. <laughs> it's supermarket sweep. Down Winton. Down Winton. I, you see, I said I didn't want this to be the sound of the Dale Winton impression. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, I knew it would happen. But, no, because it's our 10th uh, episode, Double Digits. Birthday we, boy! <laughs> it's 10 weeks, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but, uh, no, we... 10 weeks! <laughs> we, we want to do a little competition, just, just for our loyal listeners out there who have, have been enjoying the podcast over these 10 weeks and we like to give someone back and thank you for your listening so we we we've we've all brought on a prize uh who wants to announce their prize first i have a multi-pack of watsits they are a crisp uh i would say a flavored snack here in ireland if you are listening from canada or america you would call them chips a cheese it yeah a cheese it yeah a cheese it yeah yeah, wait, it's wait, a Cheeto, it's a, a Cheeto. Cheeto. Yeah, essentially, Cheeto. essentially, I have a multi-pack, aka 10 yeah. packs of Cheetos and a big massive bag. So they're going right to you if you get this Very fucking nice. question Very right. Nice. Luckily, we have an American translator with us. Yeah, no, yeah. obviously, yeah. Chris. You got it wrong first time around, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris loves an Arizona. But yeah, you, you're going to get a, a multi-pack of Cheetos. I know it's shit, but we, we don't make that much money. So, <laughs> multi-pack of Cheetos. Heron, what's your oh. prize? My prize is a it's a still like it's a still of Steve McQueen in their Great Escape, but it's actually a card. You open it up and it's actually a card. I'll write a personalized message, and I'll also hand you a wee DVD from my own collection of oh. my choice. Oh. I like that. Hey, that's nice. And you might that's even nice. you might even have the price from the second hand shop. <laughs> you give it that I personal touch if you're lucky. <laughs> might, might even be a wee, wee bit of bubble gum in there as well. Um, <laughs> my prize is uh, a pint glass with a less talk more movies logo on it. Mm-hmm. I've I've gone to no expense. I did it at work. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I think it looks pretty cool. And if you're a fan, you should enjoy it. I'm so drinking enjoy it right now, and it looks pretty fucking sweet. Not, oh, yeah. not, not the one that you're getting, but well, just one that we've made. <laughs> oh, no, that's the one they're getting. Oh, is it right? So we'll wash what? it the whole Hey, well, you know what? I know what gift you're getting my saliva. So <laughs> go for it. The thing is, you have to wash it off now. You have to re the label on it. I don't know. 
I know. To be honest with you, I jest. I jest. Well, no. If 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 you would, if you prefer if you would prefer a wine glass, possibly we could do that. Yeah, but you know yeah. we we can talk about that in the emails. Well, I mean, like if you email through and you won, and then if you would prefer a wine glass, just email us because we're yeah. always fucking dying for your response and stuff like that. We've had one or two responses so far, but we're really looking for your response just to see how the podcast is going they see how we're doing they see if we're not fucking wasting people's time or or, or, or talking shit basically so yeah so I hear you ask how do I win these amazing prizes well my good friend to my right is about to tell you calm hair and go right the game is six degrees of separation we named two different people who have worked in films or the film industry the film business and you have to connect them Within six moves, the person that connects them in the shortest amount of moves and is the first to enter the competition with the quickest amount of moves wins the prize. So if you do, if you do like four moves, you'll be bit by somebody that three moves. Done three moves, but if there's say, say if there's two with three moves, the first person they have done the three moves wins the prize. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Who are the two actors? Right, let's go for it. Let's, 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 uh, How do you connect? How do you connect John Wayne and Macaulay Culkin? Oh. That is your question for this week, folks. Get your fucking emails in. Tell us your answer. You could be in line. They want a fucking glass and a lock of fucking crisps. Ooh, <laughs> You'd be good. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Definitely. But honestly, we're fucking uh, really up please. Uh, emailing, send us a message on Facebook, Tumblr, whatever, just try and get in touch with us. I know I'm doing Mickey's bill at the minute, but definitely do because you could be uh, in line for a very shitty prize, but a heartfelt prize at the same time. So, shall we move on to and finish the show with recommendations? Who wants to recommend up tonight? I fuck it, I'll go first. Uh, my recommendation this week, just kind of fitting with the, with the water topic I've done earlier on, I'm going to name two because there's fucking so many amazing awards. First one's Maltese Falcon. One of my top three favourite films of all time. Unbelievable. John Huston directing. Uh, Humphrey Bogart starring. What I love about the Maltese Falcon is a lot of people would actually say it's the first ever fall in the war. And I, I kind of do agree with that. What's excellent about it is that the script is just fucking phenomenal. There's no great scene that will actually pop out of you. Most of the time it's just men and fedoras and good suits just standing in a room talking about stuff and, you know, kind of moving the plot on to the next point. Like Heron was saying in It's the original Fast Talking Night Treasure. Yeah, it's the original <laughs> Fast Talking Night Treasure, exactly. And like Heron was saying in round too. Knowledge, and that is one of the first films they kind of uh, put that point out there that, you know, knowledge is fucking power, especially within the film noir genre. Absolutely amazing film. I know we're fucking cut for time, so I'll say that much. And then the other one is In a Lonely Place. Oh, two? Yeah, no, two recommendations. Because I don't follow the war, and there's so many good ones, I thought I'd go for it. Nicholas Ray, I think it's 1949, maybe 1950, don't quote me in the year. Again, Humphrey Bogart. The reason I like it is because it's, instead of looking at a private investigator or a cop in the Fall of the War, John, it's looking at a screenwriter. And I think that Bogart not only gives out one of his best ever performances, but he comes off as one of the greatest cunts in all of cinema <laughs> because he is an unbelievably dislikable man who's not redeemable whatsoever. Unbelievably well shot. Very intriguing storyline. Excellent. Give it a go. Okay. Calmer. Uh, no, just picking up from the previous topic here. Uh, uh, Nicholas Rogue, I was speaking about earlier. Um... I think I'm just going to recommend the film that I watched last week. I mean, I've seen it many times, but uh, if you haven't seen it, don't look now. It's a fucking really good film. 
So I done all sorting and then the wee one bit in the middle of the record done. And I was done all sorting bit around then. The keeper's just all damn it out. I think they cut that out. Like, uh, no, it's it, no, it, it's really good. It's if anybody ever thinks about avant garde shooting and avant garde editing, I think Nicholas Rogue was always the person you go to to sort of, you know, if you are going that way with a film or something like that. There, he is one of the people you just go to to sort of affirm that you know, yeah, he invented his own style. Like he really precisely, did. and he was ahead of his time in a way in the fact yeah. that he did all these avant garde things, but Aye. then he kind of implemented them and Aye. he kind of general genres like he, he made them uh, he created them and he yeah. made them and he made them you know with, with such confidence i mean you know the best thing you can say about it's like no a plant skin away exactly i mean the best thing you can say about a film no matter how mad it is or how you know how mad it's shot or how mad it's edited or how whatever you want to say about a film it's just that uh if it's sure footed that's yeah. it if it just seems sure footed and it's confident that's you know that's a mark of a good director no matter what you're watching you're watching the craziest shit you can see, but if it's sure-footed and grounded, and you just have confidence in this guy, you know that's what it is. And we rogue, it's it's fucking seriously off the wall stuff. Yeah, but really it's so it's it's so confident, and uh, I just say don't look now. It's a great start to the Nicholas Rogue's films. Like. Perfect. Has Donald and Kiefer ever done a film together? Uh, yeah, I think they might have. A time to kill, but they were never on screen together. Oh, no. Donald Sutherland <coughs> wanted to be on screen with Kiefer. But uh, he wanted to just... Is that one Keeper still hated him? <laughs> no, I don't think he did. No, nah, I'm just... But, uh, <laughs> no, they had this whole thing of, uh, you know, they were in the same film together and never actually shared the screen. But uh, Donald Sutherland wanted this scene, because I think he was playing like a politician or something like that. And he just wanted this scene in the film. He said, because I've named his son, I've never yeah. shared the screen. He wanted to walk past Keeper across the street and just be nice and like, Something like, oh, look at those boys, whatever. And just, just sort of yeah, like just that. Like something a, like that. They have one screen, and now the director wouldn't do it. So look at these boys screen. these days. would be construed as a song completely different. But anyway, continue. Well, you just watch Calvary, like. But, uh, <laughs> uh, oh, but I think because they were, they were about to join the clan, and they were sort of, you yeah. know, this kind of thing. And that's the thing. He says, oh, look at those boys. Was, I, th- I can't remember the exact thing. There's an interview where, where he talks about it, uh, Donald Sutherland. But uh, that's the only time that they could have, but they didn't. Oh, okay. Ho- hopefully they will sometimes. <laughs> uh, my recommendation this week is Shallow Grave. Oh yes, Danny Boy. That old, old Danny, old Danny Boy. Danny Boy. Is his first film or just his first? I kind think of it is. Film? I think it is his first to write the film. Is the Shallow Grave? I think it is. Eh? Yeah. But uh, yeah, old Ian, old Ian McGregor, Chris Eccleston. Who cast? Who Can't remember the woman, which is awful. They say it's, it's, it. te- it's terrible. I've done this twice on this podcast. <laughs> I can't remember the woman, although I can remember the boy earlier. So you know, subtle sexist. <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah, it's a great film. It's really dark. It's really, it's, it is just essentially just those three people in the film yeah. as well, and it's, it's just really intriguing and really interesting, and a really good introduction to Danny Boyle as. Uh, you were saying earlier with that other director that I wasn't paying attention to because I'm quite drunk. Steven <laughs> Spielberg. Uh, Christopherson. Recommendation. Steve the Hannifer. Where to go at? Days of Wine and Roses. Oh, yeah. Good shit, man. Hey, that one. Because uh, I've only seen it once. 
and I can't play that in that fucking sport. <laughs> I can't play that in DVD. It's a rare you, you, have, you have the good American Netflix. I know. <laughs> You've got like the premium package <laughs> of Netflix. And the one thing I will say about the Days of Wine and Roses, you know, the way everybody says, oh, it's a great, it's a great anti-drinking film. You know, they say it's like you watch this and see the horrors of alcoholism. I had another one. I stuck it on a couple of years ago. I was watching it and I thought, I paused it on. I'm fucking love to get a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's not to say I wasn't deaf, like, that's the good thing about it. I was, I was fucking Jack Lemon jumping between, like, you're laughing, like, one minute, and then you're like, oh, fuck's sake, all right. But I was still hooching wine into me, but the brilliant film, <laughs> and uh, one of Jack's best acting things, I think. Next one? Man. All right. Okay, and we'll wrap it up there. If you want to enter our competition, you can email us, letstalkmoremovies at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Let's Talk More Movies Podcast, and also tweet us at Twitter Things at, at Talk More Movies. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, leave us comments, reviews, any podcast service you like. I have been your host, Michael Bresen. Our live musician for the week has been. Colm Heron's been Colm Heron. Sean Coyle's been Sean Coyle. Thank you so much. Double digits, episode number 10. Bye bye! (laughs) Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.